Welcome to the second edition of Policy Perspectives podcast, an initiative of the John Howard Prime Ministerial Library. I'm your host and executive editor, Andrew Blythe. And our guest today is Sir Anthony Selden, historian, educator, and biographer. Sir Anthony is the author of some 45 books, including biographies on former UK prime ministers from Thatcher to Blair to Johnson. Sir Anthony, welcome to Policy Perspectives and Old Parliament House here in Canberra. Good to be here, Andrew. Earlier this year, this building celebrated its 95th birthday. The formal opening of Provisional Parliament House took place on 9 May 1927, when the Duke of York, later King George VI, used a gold key to unlock the doors of the building. The Duke then handed the key to the Prime Minister, Stanley Melbourne Bruce. The Prime Minister would go on to say, may those who enter this open door govern with justice, reason and equal favour to all. May they do so in humility and without self-interest. May they think and act nationally. Sir Anthony, you've had the chance to walk through the Museum of Australian Democracy and the John Howard Prime Ministerial Library. What are your first thoughts? Well, I was very impressed and uh, I enjoyed my visit uh, to the Museum of Democracy. I love the fact that it was situated in where uh, the parliament was from 1927 onwards. So that gave it a real sense of physical uh, presence uh, with the Senate and the House of Representatives and the, the King's Hall. And then the way that the various exhibits were, were drawn, I thought was very imaginative. Don't have anything like that in the UK, although mm -hmm. I am trying to initiate a museum of premiership in the UK, celebrating the fact that we've, uh, uh, in Britain, have had 55 prime ministers over 300 years. The anniversary, 300 anniversary was last year. Uh, and then the John Howard Library, that was really interesting um, because of the way that the exhibits are brought together and the way that uh, the imagination that's gone into that uh, with, with your second longest serving mm -hmm. prime minister in Australian history since 1901. Um, I like the range of the material. I like the fact that it's not all uh, sycophancy, um, mm -hmm. that there is alternative views expressed. Uh, so again, I think we need things like that in Britain. And, um, you know, uh, I think it gives a lot of people, whether they're students or researchers or members of the general public, a lot to uh, enjoy and to make them think. I would, I'm going to be coming back to that point because I want to explore that issue with you a bit further, but let us first now talk about democracy. A recent poll conducted by the Lowy Institute tested Australians' attitudes to democracy. In 2022, Australians' preference for democracy has reached a record high. Three quarters of Australians say democracy is preferable to any other kind of government, an increase of nine points from 2019. One in five say, that in some circumstances, a non-democratic government can be preferable. Australians continue to see traditional partners as democracy, and you'll be pleased to know the vast majority of Australians agree that the United Kingdom is a democracy. Inversely, I can share with you that research by the Museum of Australian Democracy with the University of Canberra finds compelling evidence of an increasing trust divide between government and citizen reflected in the decline of democratic satisfaction, receding trust in politicians, political parties, and the media. 
as well as a lack of public confidence in the capacity of government to address public policy concerns. Um, so Anthony, you have written on trust. What is needed to address this democratic decline and renewal? That book you referred to, Andrew, that I wrote called Trust, shows very clearly, and sadly, it's much easier to lose trust than it is to gain trust. Mm. Uh, but, you know, if politicians are going to be making pledges to the electorate and to get elected on the basis, they say they're going to do things and then they forget about it uh, or don't do it, um, then if that's combined with their own personal conduct, being dishonest or manipulative or bullying uh, or treating um, minority or vulnerable people uh, poorly, if it's combined with uh, their own uh, conduct uh, uh, being in any way uh, different to what people expect and rightly expect, uh, good conduct, honest conduct, uh, from leaders, then uh, you're going to get dissolution. It is not unlike, and everything goes back to, to, to families. If parents are saying they're going to uh, uh, do things for their children and they don't, uh, then that breeds mistrust. So, um, you know, it's a worry. It's not, it's not just worry in Australia, it's a worry uh, uh, globally. Uh, the decline in trust, not just in politicians, but in, uh, in uh, uh, the media, uh, but also in, in business people uh, and, um, and, and others. And I, it's not helped that um, social media and partisan mm, broadcasting mm. stations pump out a level of, of trust, often uh, quite venomous towards other people with uh, implying that they are bad uh, 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 people. I, so that it's multifactorial how a loss of trust happens. Mm. Um, and I don't think we should say it's great to have that information about uh, the support in this country growing for democracy, but we should never take uh, democracy um, uh, on trust. Uh, and where you have an American president and Donald Trump who uh, himself it, 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 it trashes honesty uh, and trashes mm. the, the, the conduct of um, uh, the, uh, of elections when it is entirely obvious he'd lost the election to deny that and at the same time to uh, hold the highest office in, in the land um, and to repeat uh, those untruths knowing that, uh, that, that, that people out there are vulnerable um, to receiving mistruth, no, to knowingly mislead them it is, it, it is an example of abuse of power, which we've seen from too many uh, leaders in the democratic West. And that is uh, exactly what it takes to corrode trust. The journey towards autocracy um, it, it is paved with, um, uh, 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 paved with bad acts by leaders in office where they've abused their trust. We're vulnerable, Andrew. Mm. Well, thank you for that thoughtful response. Uh, well, of course, you've written on elite oral history and, and are a prolific author tracing the performances of UK prime ministers. So for our listener, what inspired you firstly to embark on political biographies and, and who has been your most fascinating subject to date? So always finding out what's happening 
Uh, and that's why this museum and the Howard Library are so interesting. You get a glimpse about what's happening behind the closed doors. Mm. So in the Museum uh, of Australian Democracy, I saw the cabinet room where there's an incredibly thick door. It's as thick as that. Yes. Uh, and that's yes. to keep the secrets in. And what you're doing <laughs> as a writer and biographer is just glimpsing in and hearing what's happened. And, you know, that is in, in, intrinsically interesting. We're all, all human beings and nosy people. We all want to, we're all curious. We want to know. Fly on uh, the wall. Absolutely. Uh, and, and an ant on the table, crawling <laughs> over the table uh, as well. We all want to know about the lives of, of film stars and, mm. and celebrities. We want to know what's really happening as opposed to what we're told is happening. So I think I'm no different. I'm just no more curious or no less curious than the average human being. Uh, and of course, it is fascinating to find out and to talk to people. You realise, Andrew, as you know yourself, that the people who um, who go into parliament to become leaders of the opposition or speakers uh, or prime ministers, who people who serve the prime ministers are just ordinary human beings mm -hmm. like, like everybody else mm -hmm. with their own vulnerabilities, insecurities, unhappinesses, anxieties. They're all worrying about you know, their children. They're worrying about their reputation. They're worrying about have they done the right thing. They're worried about what they're gonna have for dinner tonight. You know, they're just human beings. Yes. Uh, 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 and that's a core discovery. So writing about those prime ministers, starting with uh, interviewing, which is one of my own particular uh, routes into, because you can really do contemporary history because you don't have the documents or um, a lot of the documents True. you don't have. True. You really do it by talking to the people who were there in the room. Uh, and um, many people who were there in the room are fascinating, the most fascinating of all, always are the uh, less the political aides, um, less uh, the prime ministers themselves than the officials, uh, those people who are trained uh, to note what's actually happening, those people who were there before the politicians, the ministers came in and who be there afterwards, who see a longer term continuity, those who are dispassionate about what they're watching rather than those people who have a direct uh, a stake in, in the success or otherwise of uh, the, the, the particular minister or politician. So talking to uh, the, the unofficial, sorry, the officials, uh, those who do not uh, have that personal buy-in to the success of the prime minister, that's who I spent my life with. Obviously, you know, they want the prime minister to be successful, but they're not politically tied or ideologically mm. tied. Uh, they but, are the and, most useful. But what about those who want to talk to you? Uh, are those the ones you avoid? I'm always worried, Andrew, about those people who want to talk to me, <laughs> uh, because they'll always have uh, a story to tell. It will always be their story. Their story. But look, you know, <laughs> you know, every document's created for a purpose. And cabinet minutes are not a verbatim account of what's happened in cabinet. They're not like you know, parliamentary uh, records of every speech that happens that's said in the representatives or Senate. Um, they're extraordinarily partisan already. Uh, and then uh, the documents that are kept um, uh, often are only a fraction of those that are made. Uh, it's highly subjective uh, what is left. And historians that rely overly much on the document, documentary record that's left will be giving a very partial view mm. because every document 
is created for a reason. Um, uh, no one creates documents to serve the interests of, of objective scholars and, and historians. And everyone tells you things, they're telling you for uh, a reason, that's their motive for wanting to talk to you. Um, so, you know, you, if you understand that, you can head off on that and, and, and you can price in their bias uh, and, and understand what they're saying. Um, and that's, you know, that's why it's fun, you know, it's, it's, it's really fun. And, and the favourite so far? Um, they're all the favourite at the time. Like your children. Uh, whoever's in the, whoever's yeah, in the like, room. Like, yeah, whoever's in the room. Uh, whoever's been nicest to you uh, with your children. Um, no, uh, whoever gave you the biggest present. Yep. Um, so uh, who is, uh, they're all, you know, Blair was fascinating, mm -hmm. Thatcher was fascinating, uh, Gordon Brown, who took over from Blair, David Cameron, who lost the election, lost the referendum, Theresa May, quiet Theresa May, tried her best, very diligent, uh, daughter of a minister, very, very um, earnest, uh, Boris Johnson, a bit of a scoundrel though he was, is you know, fascinating. I think mm. so. I think the answer is that they're probably all fascinating in a different way. Yes. Yes. And, and if you fall out of love with the person you're writing about, then you 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 then are not going to have the same energy to want to. True. You've got to find them endlessly curious and interesting. Well, well, just you touched on Theresa May, and I and I have your May at ten on my desk, which is about a 650 page beast i can verify that and you were only on page 102 but that's all right i will finish it yeah. um but what i can reveal <laughs> is of course you you offer a scathing assessment of theresa may um early on in the book that hits you and you write that she understood little about government including the powers and limitations of her office how to make cabinet government and the civil service work for her and how to advocate and persuade. Uh, these skills were not optional extras for the task in hand. I mean, that is a brutal assessment of her. What she did and the way she conducted the office uh, was, um, she deserved it. You know, I, I'm not there to praise. Um, too many prime ministers come into that top job without learning how to do it or they're so rich and uh, and high on their own ideology and, and vanity and ego that they think that they can make it up and you can't you, know, you can't come in into any job whether it's you know running australian cricket or whether it's uh, uh running a, a law practice or running the uh the armed services and not have humility not learn from others, how do they do it? What were the problems? You don't assume that they're all idiots and, 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 and incompetence. Um, you, you work with the system and, and yet we have a succession of prime ministers. It was surprising and it was disappointing that she was like that, but mm. she was like that. And, you know, and, and the proof, Andrew, is she had one big job to do. Um, her big job was to make Brexit happen. Um, the country had voted very narrowly to, in favor of Brexit. Brexit then needed to happen. There needed to be a deal with the European Union, a divorce settlement. I mean, you can decide uh, in the referendum, Britain was deciding that uh, it was going to be divorced from Europe. Um, but then that divorce had to take place. The contract had to be agreed. The terms on which the country would relate to, to the EU and vice versa had to be decided. Now, she had to do that. 
But she didn't listen to the people who understood about Britain's relationship with the EU. She didn't talk to people who understood about history. She didn't understand, uh, talk to people about the way that these kind of contracts uh, 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 in international law are founded. She thought she could just do it all herself. Mm. And she didn't use the civil service uh, to her advantage uh, and didn't use the system. So, you know, I like her, I admire her, but she got it wrong. And I'm sorry that she got it wrong. And I wish I didn't have to say those things about her, but I believe they're true and fair. So if we move on then to her successor, Boris Johnson, I understand that you'll be uh, releasing Boris at 10 next April. How would you describe then why he failed as prime minister? Well, he doesn't think that he failed. Uh, he released a, a statement shortly after he announced his uh, intention to stand down, uh, making clear that he was a remarkable prime minister who had uh, won a, a, a major uh, general election landslide, that's true, who got Brexit um, done. Uh, the divorce settlement was agreed and passed through Parliament, um, done, that he saw the country through COVID done, that he uh, announced a policy called levelling up, mm -hmm. um, which he did, and that he Interesting uh, advanced, uh, uh, absolutely advanced, um, that he, he offered relentless support to uh, Volodymyr Zelensky uh, yes. in Ukraine, uh, mm -hmm. who, who his country has been invaded by Vladimir Putin. Uh, uh, true, true, true. Uh, but then if we look at uh, what did he do with the general election victory, the landslide, he was out two years after winning a, a landslide uh, general election uh, victory. He didn't use the political capital that he had earned in that year. Uh, he did get uh, the Brexit divorce settlement done, but he didn't then get the benefits of the divorce settlement. The whole idea, the talking, we were talking about trust there, that, that, that Britain um, expected the benefits um, to come. Britain was told there'd be enormous economic benefits, enormously more money coming in for the health service, mm. that immigration would be sorted out. Uh, there'd be benefits um, to, to, the, to the least advantaged areas of the country. None of these things have happened. COVID he did, but um, it could have been much uh, better done. Uh, international comparisons would show he did support uh, uh, Zelensky, but so what? Mm. Uh, um, so what? I mean, uh, uh, Putin has advanced and advanced and advanced. So, you know, th th that's the stuff of history, isn't it? Um, mm. that, 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 that ultimately history is an argument. Uh, and you make a cogent argument based on evidence. So then if we turn to the current leadership uh, challenge and we move forward to my birthday, September 5. Happy birthday. Thank you very much in advance. Who will be the leader? And will that person then be successful at the next election, given that for the last 30 of the last 45 years, it has been conservative rule? So uh, when you have your 40th birthday, Andrew, uh, there you. will be a, a new British uh, prime minister. Thank you. Uh, and um, I, we don't know who that's going to be. And at this point in time, one of the two candidates, the former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, uh, is... Um, uh, not the favoured candidate. Uh, I think he will 
very likely become the favoured candidate. Um, but he does have the Thatcherites and the Boris Johnsonites against him. Mm. Um, it's it's very hard to say. The other candidate, Liz Truss, uh, former Liberal did, Democrat, former Liberal Democrat, Remainer. Um, yeah, I mean she voted Remain, but 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 she's been a very very convinced Brexiteer since. So okay. the Brexiteers have forgiven her okay. for that. Um, uh, she might do it at this point in time. It is impossible uh, to say. Uh, whoever, uh, uh, and indeed, by the time people are seeing this, it will be known. Um, uh, but that's not why I'm saying it's impossible to say. It just is impossible because so many, who knows uh, what uh, facts will be dredged up, uh, which could uh, make or break uh, either of those two candidates. Um, who knows how they will campaign? Who knows how the newspapers will uh, decide to, to lend their, the, the, their own support to? Unknowable. Uh, what is known is that whoever it is is going to have an incredibly difficult task, mm. uh, the most difficult inheritance, I think, since... Straight 19, into campaigning. Since nine, ni 1945, with the general election two years um, uh, ahead of them, but they might well advance that if they feel ahead in the polls, they might well capitalise mm -hmm. on it. There's always a rush to, a, to, mm -hmm. to a, a PM just after they come into office, uh, uh, but equally that can very quickly evaporate. No one wants to get to the top of a mountain to be knocked off it, you know, a few weeks later. So, um, you know, that caution often takes over. They're going to be in campaign mode. The economy is in desperate trouble, not least because of COVID and because of the impact on the cost of living of the Ukrainian war. Uh, the Brexit uh, hasn't been helpful to the economy. Um, and the you know, that's a difficult problem. Leveling up hasn't been uh, achieved, uh, but that's costly. The Conservative Party is deeply divided, Andrew, uh, between those who want uh, the Thatcherites, who want a small state, low tax, low spending, and the so-called One Nation Tories, who follow a 19th century leader Disraeli and 20th century leaders like Baldwin and uh, and Macmillan, who who want to see a you know bigger state and a bigger welfare. Mm. It's also divided between nationalists. Uh, who believe in Great Britain and Global Britain um, and um, who are the Brexiteers and the internationalists who think that Britain is strongest uh, bonded into international organisations. And, you know, that's that, 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 that powerful divisions and, and the fact that no uh, party in Britain since the birth of uh, the beginning of democracy in the Reform Act uh, has won five elections in a yes. row under the same party. So it's going to be really difficult and they'll be straight into campaign uh, mode. Um, they may or may not employ Linton Crosby, who has Sir been... Sir Linton Crosby. Uh, thank you. Uh, who has been an extraordinarily influential figure um, in uh, British politics, who's, mm. who's, uh, uh, one of whose mantra is, is you know, strip things down to the bare essentials. So you probably won't have a lot of time for... Um, expansive policies, you'll just say, you know, it's all about the economy, you know. It's and, the barnacles. And, uh, it's the barnacles. Yes, Deal with the barnacles and then... Uh, you know, and all the, all the things that Prime Ministers really care about uh, aren't the things that the electorate care about, which will pivot that election in 23-24. So, but, you know, look, he may not... Uh, um, you know, whether or not uh, the winner employs Linton Crosby, they will employ the Linton Crosby mindset because it's it's been really hard baked into, into the British psyche of Prime Minister. And, and who's more likely to call in Sir Anthony Seldon for advice on the architecture of number 10? Um, the 
I, 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 I think they're much too uh, wise and successful to want to call me in. Um, uh, they might want to call me in on on the plumbing, uh, but not <laughs> but not the architecture. Nothing is out or, or in the boiler room, um, uh, and the engine room. But but I think that's yeah. that's about uh, well, um, my level. They both entry. they would both be wise to reach out to you. So, if we can turn then to prime ministerial libraries in 2021, you wrote an article for the Spectator arguing the need for prime ministerial libraries in the UK. You ask, where can visitors go to understand more about the role of the UK Prime Minister? And you answer, nowhere. You describe every room in number 10 Downing Street as a time capsule of history, with every piece of furniture having its own history. And you conclude we would be a better country for a museum of British premiership. Where do you see that issue right now? And, and what do you hope to take back with you? Well, I, I think, as I was suggesting at the beginning, that I've learned a lot here about how that can be done. I think it must be done. So Britain uh, invented the office of prime minister in 1721, and many countries have taken that very name, prime minister, and instituted an office pretty much like the British prime minister with a cabinet and a cabinet secretariat. Um, so, you know, it's interesting, wouldn't it? Isn't, isn't that something to have a museum about? Oh, I can't believe um, you haven't got one. And thank you very much. I'll quote you on that. But, <sighs> but um, it is, um, I've learned a lot here uh, from, from, from the Howard Library and, and from the Museum of Democracy and seeing all the students coming around and visitors mm. makes you realise what can and should be achieved. You know, and it would be in London, though I hope with outposts in, in Edinburgh and Glasgow and mm. um, Belfast, um, uh, also, but you know, it's easier to get to London uh, across the country where you have uh, 15 million who can get to it within an, an hour uh, than it is in Canberra necessarily because of the enormous expansive size of the country here. So, you know, all the more reason to, to have that and to have you know, great online facilities. So it's given me a real push. Excellent. And look, I think what I've shared with you today is the the learnings from the presidential libraries that, are, that exist is that the links to universities, um, they're vital. Uh, and we obviously have that with the UNSW um, and then curriculum is developed as well. So we can only uh, offer our um, advice, you know, if, if you wish it, and we'd be more than happy to share um, uh, our successes and our learnings over the last five years. So more than happy to be a partner with you uh, as you advance that. So uh, I, th I think that would be, uh, that's very kind proposition and thank you very much I'd love to share that all right that's fantastic but perhaps one of the questions then is it is it it's obviously the answer is obvious but you think it is in the taxpayers interest to fund a prime ministerial library or libraries well I think it gets back to your early uh, early questions there Andrew about democracy you need in a democracy I mean I, I was really gratified seeing up in the um, in the new parliament, the post, is it 1988 building? Correct. Uh, that to see so many visitors and particularly so many school students, you can't, as we were saying, uh, immediately assume that people are going to be attracted to democracy, totalitarian leaders or populists within countries, um, like Hitler, for example, came to power on a democratic mandate, uh, but they have every intention of... of killing democracy as soon as they come into power. The democracy sustains itself 
by educating the young in the merits of democracy and also in the demerits of non-democracy. And to therefore, for any state to pay for young people to be educated in the benefit of, of debate uh, and, and free speech, uh, which, which is uh, not there in, in the majority of countries in uh, the world, um, this is a very good use of taxpayers' money because it, it, it's likely to perpetuate the state. Um, and if you hide away uh, the way your democracy works, uh, you will be doing uh, possibly irreparable damage, particularly in our volatile age in the early 21st century, uh, possibly irreparable damage to the continuance of that democracy and certainly the quality of the democracy. When you leave here, you are going to the Australian War Memorial where you will be uh, involved in the last post ceremony, a moving ceremony. Could you just finish on the Western Front way and, and what that is about and why does it mean so much to you? Uh, I think it was going to mean a lot to Australians uh, and New Zealanders who lost vast numbers proportionate to the populations at the time on the Western Front. So when I was writing a book um, 10 years ago, I came across a letter from a soldier who had a vision for, for um, a path all the way uh, from Switzerland to the North Sea, a thousand kilometers. Um, and he said, if I survived the war, he didn't actually, he was killed. Uh, I would like to see this path created so that people from all around the world can walk it as a reminder of the perils of war. Uh, and they can be learning that from the graves on both sides of the path that go all the way um, along the thousand kilometers from those who died um, fighting for their country and fighting for what they believe was democracy and liberty. Um, and um, so the path is, um, I just felt, uh, uh, last year that uh, that to give I, that I felt I had to make the path a reality because that hasn't happened in thousand in a hundred years so I did walk the path and mm. walked uh, and it was a thousand kilometers goodness um took me 35 days That's a few steps uh it was a million steps, million uh, steps and through soil that 10 million um bled often to their death in and and the path is now creating being created and I would love Australian groups, service groups, veteran groups, youth groups, uh, walking groups, cycling groups to come uh, on that walk, see the places where Australian soldiers fought, more Australians, I hardly say, uh, died in the Western Front than they did in Gallipoli, um, and, and in a sense, slightly rebalance uh, Gallipoli in the national consciousness uh, and see all the other places, but not just Australians uh, fought, and New Zealanders, uh, but those from from across the Dominions and Britain, and but those who fought, who who were uh, uh, German and Austria-Hungary, and uh, and all those uh, who took part. Hundred nations took part in the in the First World War. It was truly the first World War. It's an incredible walking path, and it's an amazing thing to take part in it. And I, of course, um, recognise you have family in Kiev and. It must be a troubling time. Yeah, I mean, we're facing the prospect of a third world war. Mm. And the third world war might be the last. If there's a third world war, there might uh, be no fourth world war because there'll be no one left to fight it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a troubling time. We all have a duty to strive towards peace and, and to uh, pursue our objectives, not in violent and abusive ways or 
burning uh, down buildings of democracy or trying to, uh, but in civilized ways that honor the traditions of that country and the civilized discourse that is required to bring about change. Uh, violence doesn't bring about change. Violence just leads to more violence and more anger and more recrimination. Um, persuasion, debate, civilization, respect for others brings about change. Well, I could talk to you for hours. Um, it has been a real career highlight for me this last week, having met you um, at a dinner in Sydney and then having your company the last two days. And I, I can't thank you enough for that. Um, our listener, however, has to get on with other things. So we best wrap up here. But I do hope you've enjoyed your time in Australia and, and the time that's remaining. And I look forward to staying in touch with you when, uh, from when you return back. back. Um, and thank you, Andrew, very much. And thank you to the John Howard Library. Um, uh, it, it has been extraordinarily stimulating being here. I have a deep love for your country, as you know. Um, and to, to be here uh, has been, and to get to know you better and colleagues better, uh, and to meet John Howard himself, Indeed. Uh, has been an incredible, incredible privilege. And thank you. Well, and I look forward to Boris at 10, and I'm sure it'll be a cracking read. You'll probably look forward to it more than he will. <laughs> Sir Anthony Selden, thank you very much. Thank you.